at John chapter 4 and verses 1 to 30. And we're doing a two-week series this week and next week. Vicky's speaking tonight um, on John chapter 4. And it goes as follows. Now, Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. Although, in fact, it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now, he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You're a Jew, and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you have five husbands and the man you have now is not your husband. What you've just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you're a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you'll worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshippers will worship the Father in the spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshippers must worship in the spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he'll explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. Just then his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman, but no one asked, what do you want or why are you talking with her? Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, come see a man who told me everything I've ever done. Could this be the Messiah? They came out of the town and made their way towards him. Thank you, Jago. That's wonderful. Um, for those of you um, who don't know me, my name is Vicky, and I'm on the staff team here at HTC. And uh, shall we pray as we um, look at the passage that Jago has just read? Father, thank you um, for your word. Thank you that it is living and that it is active. And our hearts, Lord, um, this evening want to be turned towards you. We want to receive from you all that you want to speak to us. So, Lord, we pray that we would be receptive to your spirit. Amen. Amen. So, as um, Jago has just said, uh, this evening we're starting a two-part series looking at spiritual thirst and spiritual hunger in the Gospel of John. So, I'm going to look at thirst tonight, and Tim is going to tackle hunger um, next week. Um, And 
We don't anymore have sermon notes on a bit of paper. So you may be somebody whose thumbs work quick enough to type notes as I speak. I am not one of those people. I would get repetitive strain injury. Um, so if you're not one of those people, do remember in future that you might have to bring a notebook to church. Now, if you were raised a Baptist, you'll already be doing that. If you weren't, try something new. We really want to save the planet here at HTC, and we don't want to be printing out lots of bits of paper every week. So if you want to be taking notes, uh, do remember to bring a notebook. Uh, that was a little bit of ecumenical humor, um, by the way. Um, please don't send me angry emails. Okay, so John 4, verses 1 to 30. Now, we're looking at the topic of spiritual thirst. And this entire encounter between Jesus and the woman starts because Jesus is thirsty. And he's not just thirsty, he is also tired and he is weary from his journey. And we're going to spend the start of this sermon looking at the geography of that journey. Because the geography of Jesus' journey has a bearing on the encounter that happens between him and the woman. In verse 3, have a look in your Bibles in front of you. In, that's going to lose its attraction. I'm not going to say that every time. In verse 3, John explains that Jesus is traveling from Judea, which was in the south, back to Galilee, which was in the north. And then in verse 4, continuing his explanation of the geography, um, John states that Jesus had to go through Samaria. Well, he didn't. He didn't have to go through Samaria. It was not the only route. There was an alternative route. It was longer and it was more difficult. But interestingly, at this current time in history, it was the route that most Jews, and certainly all rabbis, would have taken. And the reason was that, the reason for that is because of the relationship at that time between the Jewish people and the Samaritan people. You may have heard, if you've read the Old Testament, the story in the Old Testament of the Assyrians capturing Samaria, the capital of the northern kingdom of Israel. And when the Assyrians captured Samaria, they did what most invading forces do today as well. They did two things. The first thing they did was they deported a number of the citizens, and they deported all the influential ones. And then all the Israelites, all the Jews who were left, they populated Samaria with foreigners and those surviving Israelites intermarried. So something really interesting happened. The Samaritans who'd stayed in captured Samaria felt like they were the true defenders of the Jewish faith. They had stayed, they'd intermarried, they'd occupied the homeland. But when the influential Jews came back to the northern kingdom after the exile, they viewed the Samaritans as children of political rebels. And they viewed them as racially and religiously impure because they'd intermarried. And to make it worse, the Samaritans had declared that Jerusalem, that was no longer the temple. Mount Gerizim was the temple. It was a tinderbox. It was a tinderbox between the Samaritans and the Jews. 
And Mount Gerizim, by the way, is where the Samaritans and the Jewish people believed that Abraham had gone to sacrifice his son Isaac. So that's the significance of Mount Gerizim. And today, just you know, a little bit of a history geek in me, but I think it's actually fascinating for this story. Today, there are about 800 Samaritans living in the Middle East. They're one of the smallest ancient communities in the world. And today, Mount Gerizim, the mountain, is sandwiched between Harbaraka, which is an Israeli settlement, and Nablus, which is a Palestinian settlement. And Mount Gerizim sits in the middle of those two settlements. And a number of years ago, the BBC interviewed a Samaritan man named Joseph Cohen. And Joseph Cohen was driving between the Israeli and the Palestinian settlement. And he says in this report, When I was almost home, I came across two Palestinian boys, and they shot me. And the blood ran from me like water. Joseph Cohen lost control of his car and drove into an Israeli roadblock. The Israeli soldiers shouted at him to stop, but he couldn't stop the car, and so they also shot him. Now, he survived, fortunately. But the BBC reporter went on to say, there are probably few people in the world who have been shot by both Palestinians and Israelis within minutes of each other. And in response, the Samaritan man, Mr. Cohen, said, that is a picture. That is the short story of our problem. That is the short story of our ancient problem that goes back to the meeting that we've just heard. Samaritans not fully accepted by either culture that they live alongside. When Jesus, on his journey, chooses to go through Samaria, something he doesn't have to do, when he chooses to go through Samaria, he is fully aware of the racial and cultural and religious boundaries he is crossing. Um, This text, the Bible, is ancient in its historicity. But it is not ancient in its resonance today. And it is not ancient in its application. We've just read a story of an interaction between a Jewish teacher and a Samaritan woman at a well discussing a sacred mountain. It can be really easy to see it here in 21st century Clapham and just dismiss that as having very little or no relevance to questions of spiritual thirst today. But I think it has every relevance. It has every relevance to Joseph Cohen as he drives between Palestinian settlement and Israeli settlement. And it has every relevance to us. The woman at the end of the passage Jago read says, Come, see the man who told me everything I've ever done. Could this be the Messiah? Could this be the Messiah? There is no more important question to answer for the woman, and there is no more important question to answer for us.
As C.S. Lewis once said, Christianity, and Christianity is, is found in the cross, it's found in the person and the work of Jesus. Christianity, if, if false, C.S. Lewis says, is of no importance. If it's true, it's of infinite importance. The only thing it cannot be is moderately important. And the woman knows this. Could this be the Messiah? That is the question that she is thirsting to answer. So let's look more deeply at this encounter between the woman and Jesus. Take a look at verses 8 and 9. When Jesus asks the woman for a drink, it's a common sense thing to do. He is thirsty. He's sitting at a well. When he asks her for a drink, the first thing she does is she clarifies who she is and who he is. You are a Jew, a Jewish man, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? So from the get-go, this is a conversation around spiritual thirst, but from the get-go, from the start, identity is the key issue on the table. And in this conversation, it's being presented as a barrier to interaction. But Jesus' response is not to steer away from the question, but to reframe it. So in verse 10, he says, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. If you knew. If you knew. The implication is that she doesn't know who Jesus is. So the invitation is, does she want to know? Does she want to know the Son of God who carries in himself the gift of God and offers her right now living water? Does she want to know? Not yet. Not yet. Not quite. But she does want to keep asking questions. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater then our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself. So often, a vital spiritual thirst finds its um, creativity and finds its way through questions. We become more thirsty often as we ask those questions. That is why Alpha is brilliant. You know, Alpha has been done by millions and millions of people. Um, and part of the reason why Alpha is brilliant is because it's not a unique formula. We see it. Alpha is this conversation. Alpha is this encounter. Alpha is about placing ourselves in an environment where we can ask questions and we can have conversation. Jesus was the great question asker. Jesus loves, absolutely loves questions. And Jesus takes her questions and he doesn't ridicule them. Because she's kind of saying to Jesus, who do you think you are? You're saying that you are superior to Jacob. And Jesus goes on to explain who he is in comparison to Jacob. Sorry, I need some water. <clears throat> Whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them, and notice the repetition, will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Jesus is saying, I am superior to Jacob. 
My well is superior. My water is superior. And most importantly, my sons and my daughters, unlike Jacob's sons, will know the gift of eternal life. But just like Nicodemus in the chapter before, in chapter 3, the woman still doesn't understand that Jesus is not speaking about literal water. But Jesus is speaking about the water of life that he gives. Perfect illustration. (laughs) Thanks, Rory. This was not planned. Um, Jesus is speaking. Oh, so good. Um, Jesus is speaking (laughs) about the water of life that he gives by his spirit. And at this point, let's look at verse 16. At this point, the focus of the conversation changes. And the focus shifts to who the woman is. And Jesus says in verse 16, and this seems like a complete shift of tangent, change in tangent, go call your husband and come back. It seems like it comes out of nowhere. They've not been talking about this. So what, what, is, what is happening here? Um, and if you can imagine this, if you can imagine the Jesus and the woman talking, I would imagine there would be a beat at this moment in the conversation, a pause. Go call your husband and come back. What does she say? What does she say to Jesus? What does she say in response? Because there is a story, there's a backstory here, and how much does she reveal to this man? And we don't know what the woman's story is. Very interestingly, a lot of commentators will call her an adulteress. Really interesting, Jesus doesn't, and neither does John. Um, She's definitely at the well at a time that most people wouldn't be. You wouldn't go and collect water at noon. It was the hottest time of the day. So she's at the well because she doesn't want to be seen. But we don't know that she's an adulteress. Actually, it's pretty unlikely that she's had five husbands through adultery. Because to be adulterous and divorce, and then be adulterous and then divorce, and then be adulterous and divorce in that culture, you'd have been stoned to death for being adulterous once. So to get away with it five times, very unlikely. What is quite likely is that she's lost five husbands to death or to disease. That is far more likely. And in Middle Eastern culture, being a widow five times over would mean that you were absolutely desolate and poor why Jesus commands the church to look after widows and orphans. There was no benefit system. So it's quite likely that she has thrown herself into the hands of a man because he is the only person who can look after her. So it's quite likely that this is actually a story of grief and poverty and desperation. So when Jesus says, go call your husband and come back, she says, I have no husband. I wonder how difficult those words were to get out. And Jesus says to her, you're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands, and the man you have now is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Jesus states the facts. Five husbands, 
the man you're with now is not your husband. Jesus states the facts, but he doesn't go anywhere with the facts. He doesn't bring it up to condemn her. Interestingly, he doesn't bring it up to get closure or repentance. And Jesus has done that in the past. When he interacts with a woman caught in adultery, he says to her, get up and go and sin no more. So Jesus is not fearful by any means of calling people to repentance. But he doesn't call this woman to repentance. And he doesn't bring it up to rehearse the details, to ask her more questions about her situation. I think he brings it up for one reason. He brings it up to expose her thirst. And her thirst, her greatest desire, is to be known, is to be seen, is to be seen and to be known and to be loved. And that, I actually think, is most of our greatest desires. Yes, our greatest desire is to be loved, but actually, there's always that tiny fear, isn't it? That if somebody really knew me, would they love me? So actually, I think one of our greatest thirsts in life is to be truly known and truly loved for who we are. And Jesus, in that moment, when he states the facts, when he says to her, you have had five husbands, and the man you're now with is not your husband. What Jesus is saying is not that I condemn you. He's not calling her to repentance. He is saying, I know you. I know who you are. I was there at the creation of the universe, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And I know you. I know your past and I know your present. I know the ways that you try to hide. And let's not... Um, Pretend for, her, for a moment that this woman doesn't use language to try and hide. I have no husband is true. It's a slight legal technicality as well. We all use language to hide behind what is actually sometimes the real truth. Nothing is hidden from Jesus. And what is incredible in this moment is that truth when it is spoken to the woman is not shaming, and it is not condemning. That truth is utterly life-changing. But as the truth of who Jesus is starts to sink in, it is also challenging. And I think it's challenging for this woman and it's challenging for every individual who has met Jesus since, including you and including me. Our greatest thirst is to be known and one of the great paradoxes of our discipleship is to be known completely by Jesus is our greatest desire. But in being completely known, it strips everything away. And we are dependent. We are surrendered. And we don't always find that very easy. And she recognizes that Jesus knows her. Sir, I can see you are a prophet. Yet she does not want to talk about what Jesus has raised. She doesn't want to talk about who she is. And so she does. What many of us do is she moves the conversation from the personal to the theoretical debate. So she moves from the personal to the theological. 
She wants to talk about geography. Because as a Samaritan, geography and identity are intimately connected. She wants to talk about where our ancestors worshipped on this mountain. What do you think about that, Jesus? Which mountain? Which mountain is important? Which temple is important? She wants to talk about the where. Jesus wants to talk about the who. Verse 23, a time is coming and has now come when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. The issue is not this mountain or that mountain, but spirit and truth, God's spirit and God's truth. And in spirit and in truth, in that moment, the woman knows Jesus to be the Messiah. Her thirst is met when she realizes that Jesus knows her and he loves her. And he offers her the gift of eternal life. And in that moment, she is utterly transformed. And how do we know that? She goes rushing back to the town. Could this be the Messiah? Come and see the man who has told me everything I have ever done. It's a complete 360 turnaround. This is the woman who has hidden from the town. This is the woman who comes out of the town at a time that nobody else does to go and collect water at a time that nobody else does. She wants to keep everything about her past well and truly hidden. And after meeting Jesus, she turns around and she goes running back into the town and says, come and meet the man who has told me everything I have ever done. And don't you think the question from those living in the town would have been, who is the man and what have you done? the obvious question. It's the obvious question. What have you done that this man was so interested in? And who is he? But there is freedom and there is liberation because she has been transformed by knowing Jesus. And I wonder this evening where we are, where do we find ourselves in this passage? Do we identify with the woman at the start of the passage? Like the woman, um, now it's interesting with this woman, she's not like some other characters in the gospel. Nicodemus goes looking for Jesus. Zacchaeus goes looking for Jesus. The woman who touches Jesus' cloak goes searching for Jesus. This woman, she's not looking for Jesus at all. She happens to happen upon him at the well. She's not looking. He's looking. She's not looking. So tonight, um, You may be here and have no idea why you are. You are not seeking Jesus, but you find yourself here. You would not be the first person for that if that was the case. You're not seeking Jesus. You happen to find yourself in a church. If that is the case and you're here tonight and you have questions, can I say that what Jesus says to the woman at the end of the passage, he is also saying to you tonight. Jesus is saying to you tonight, I am the one speaking to you. Jesus is speaking to you this evening. He is speaking to you through the circumstances that have brought you here. He is speaking to you through the songs and the words and the conversations that you will have. And he is going to continue speaking to you if you are ready and willing to listen to him. And you might have a ton of questions if you are here tonight. And can I encourage you, come on Alpha, please, come on Alpha. Come and ask those questions. Come and have conversation. 
Jesus wants to continue to speak to you. And the second thing I'd love to encourage you to do, if that is you tonight, uh, we believe as a church that one of our values is generosity. I've not asked permission to do this, but I'm just going to do it anyway. Um, as Christians, we also believe that when God gifts us, we should give away. So these brand new Bibles that I've not asked permission to do this with, um, we would love 10% of these to disappear tonight from the church. So if this is you, and you are, um, you've got questions, and you believe that Jesus may be speaking to you tonight, we'd love you to take a Bible with you. We are more than happy, 10% or more, to disappear out of the church tonight. Because I believe that we meet Jesus in the Word. We meet Jesus when we read about him. We meet Jesus in the pages of this book. So if that is you, you're not sure why you're here tonight, but you've come and you want to know more, come on Alpha, come and speak to any of us. We'd love to continue to have a conversation with you and take his Word this evening. That might be some of us. For others of us, we once identified with the woman's cry, come and meet this man. We once identified with her passion, but not now. We once were spiritually hydrated, but not now. It's really interesting, isn't it, that Jesus meets a Samaritan woman and she is the first evangelist. I don't know if you got that in the text, but this woman is the first evangelist recorded in the Gospels. Uh, very similar to Mary Magdalene in the garden, she is also an evangelist as she goes out and declares the resurrection of Christ. Now it's fascinating. They're both women. It's fascinating because it's not the best evangelism strategy for Jesus to have taken. In those days, a woman's word was not binding in a court of law. So a woman's word could not be used as testimony. Who do you choose to go and testify about the risen Christ? Who do you go and choose to testify to Samaria that Jesus might be the Messiah? A woman? It's crazy. It's not what you do. And um, even if Jesus, as he was, Jesus is the greatest equal opportunist in the world, <laughs> it doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense to send a woman if... Sharing the gospel is about convincing arguments. It doesn't make sense to send a woman if sharing the gospel is about convincing arguments. Because a woman's testimony would not have convinced anybody. It only makes sense if the best evangelism strategy ever is a transformed life. It only makes sense in that context. And what Jesus understood is that the only qualification to sharing Jesus is a transformed life. It's the best qualification. The reason why Jesus sends the Samaritan woman, why she goes back to her town and people come and people come and meet Jesus, is because they notice that she is utterly transformed. Utterly transformed. It's the same with Mary Magdalene. A transformed life. One of the things I think about in my life, and I think about often in the church's life, is that sometimes we have to put on so many courses to do with evangelism because we're all a bit spiritually dehydrated. Because actually, if we were fully hydrated, the transformation that would flow from us would just speak to the surrounding world in a way that would mean that, yes, we would have to know how to explain our faith, 
but it would be obvious that we were carrying something within ourselves that was transforming, that was different. And it's when this woman is fully spiritually hydrated and she goes back that the town comes rushing to see Jesus. When I was um, in my 20s, I was a teacher and I um, lived, I had a Coke habit, a Coca-Cola, sorry, a Coca-Cola habit. <laughs> Oops. Um, it would have been fine. If I'd had a Coke habit, that would have also been a story. Um, but I had a Coca-Cola habit. I had a Coca-Cola habit. Um, and I drank, honest, I drank about four cans a day until my dentist, uh, well, two things happened. My dentist basically said, can you stop doing that, please? You'll have no teeth by the time you're 30. Um, and secondly, um, the whole Healthy Schools initiative started, so they took all the vending machines out. Nightmare. We started a black market in the staff room. Um, but... One thing I discovered that is physically true that I also think is spiritually true. If you drink tea, coffee, and fizzy drinks all day, you never feel thirsty, but you are seriously dehydrated. It is only when you start drinking water, pure water, that you actually start to feel thirsty. Um, and it's to do with the fact that, in a sense, our thirst mechanism um, gets switched off. We can hydrate ourselves with a load of things that aren't actually quenching our thirst. If anything, coffee does the opposite. It doesn't hydrate you. Um, and it's only when I started drinking water that I actually realized how thirsty I was. I actually realized how dehydrated I was. Dehydration is one of those things that you can be, and it's only when it gets really serious that you really realize you are dehydrated. And I think it is a brilliant illustration for our spiritual lives. I think so many of us live in the ordinary spiritual life where we are just at this low level of dehydration. And then something happens and it's generally the extreme. We will either hit extreme a breakup or grief or difficulty, and we have to go running for hydration to Jesus because we cannot do life without him. <gasps> and suddenly we realize how thirsty we were. Or we hit the summer and we go to a Christian festival, be it David's Tent or Soul Survivor or Focus, and we stand in the middle of 5,000 Christians worship and we go, <gasps> I suddenly realize how thirsty I am. Because that's heaven, well, maybe hell for some people, depending on how you like Christian gatherings. But for lots of people, it's heaven. And, we, but the, and then we're like, oh, and I need more. And I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it, I'm going to spend more time with Jesus, I'm going to read my Bible more. And then we come back into everyday life. And we forget the thirst. The situation clears up or gets better. And the festival is put on hold for another year. And we come back to living in that middle place. And we continue then to live again, and I think quite often, a level of dehydration. And we just don't realize it. I don't realize it. I only realize it when <gasps> I suddenly hit a situation and I realize how thirsty I am. And I think reading this story reminded me again that a transformed life is what will speak to the world of Jesus. And the way we are transformed is to be filled with his spirit and to bear fruit for him. And that is not something we can go for long, we're not camels, we can't go for long periods and then all of a sudden fill up. It's a day in, day out, 
spending time with Jesus, not just the 10 minutes at the beginning of the day or the end of the day, but day in, day out. How are we talking with Jesus? How are we spending time in his word? How are we spending time in community, being filled with his spirit? So that our lives speak of the Messiah. Come and see the man who told me everything I've ever done. Try Church Sunday. How many of us have got people that we can go to and say, come, come and meet, come and meet the man. Come and meet the man who's transformed my life. Come and meet Jesus who has transformed every area of who I am. Come and ask those questions. Could this be the Messiah? In a moment, we're about to celebrate communion, and I'll finish here. Um, and as we celebrate communion, it is worth remembering that on the cross, Jesus died thirsty. On the cross, in his thirst, he cried out for water, but he was given sour wine. Do you remember that bit in the crucifixion story? Jesus cries out for water, and they give him the, the cloth with vinegar on it. And Jesus wasn't acting thirsty to illustrate a spiritual truth. His body was in excruciating pain, and he was crying out for water. And he was separated from physical water at that point, but also from his father, from the fountain of the water of life. And in his resurrection, Jesus' thirst was quenched. And so it is only the resurrected Jesus who has the power to say to you, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. There is nothing else in your life today, be that work, be that your relationship, be that your family, be that money, be that sex, be that anything. There is nothing else that has the authority or the power to say to you, come to me and drink. Because it is only Jesus who has known that thirst, that agonizing thirst. And it is only Jesus who has gone down to the pit of hell and died and come back up and been resurrected and can say, as the resurrected Christ, I now have the, he has the authority to say, come to me, whoever is thirsty, and drink. There will be lots of things that, in your life that will pretend to have that authority, that will appear to have that authority, that will call to you to come and drink, but only listen to Jesus. Because he is actually only the one who can speak with authority about spiritual thirst. And he says, let anyone who is thirsty, anyone who is thirsty, come to me and drink. And we're going to gather now as a church family, and we're going to take and share communion um, with each other. And the way we're going to do that is we're going to come forward and um, Jake is going to lead us and we'll take communion at the front and then we will kind of go off to the sides. And there will be people at those sides who would love to pray with you. And part of, part of being spiritually hydrated is prayer. So when we say every Sunday at the 6 p.m., come forward for prayer, we don't kind of say it as a nice thing to do. It is a nice thing to do, but we don't say it for that reason. We say it because we know that it is a place where we can stand together and reaffirm our identity as children of God and be filled with the Spirit and to pray for each other. 
It's a spiritual discipline, but it's a way of quenching our thirst, of being hydrated. And it doesn't need to be about some huge thing in your life, though it could be. We all need to be filled afresh as we go out from this place, as we seek to live lives that are transformed, that speak of Jesus. And we need spiritual food and drink to do that. We need to be filled afresh with his spirit. So can I encourage you, as I hand over to Jago, can I encourage you, as you come forward to receive communion, why don't you head off to the sides and we will pray for each other. Think about something that you would love Jesus to speak his refreshment into and over you um, this week.